remember when I brought up the uh, Earth Cargo Authority a couple episodes ago? I said how cool of a story idea that would be. I swear I didn't know this episode was coming. In fact, this is another one of those I basically didn't remember it episodes. I had no idea what I was walking into here. Go figure, this is one of my favorites so far. I mean that. It's it's a good Travis-centric episode, one of the, arguably the only Travis-centric episode, since the only other episode he basically gets is Fortunate Son, and we all know my thoughts on that one. It's a down-to-earth tale. It shows another side of Starfleet progression. It's good world-building. It's good world-building not just for Starfleet and humans, but also for the home sector. I keep I keep talking about this, right? I've always said, and I and I have, have been reaffirmed of my opinion going back through Enterprise, that early Enterprise should have focused on the home sector. I know, I know. Political stories are kind of my wheelhouse. I get that. But even just world-building, right? Just examining and showcasing the issues back home. I, I feel like there's a lot of potential there. And this episode is pretty much a lower deck... Well, not, not lower deck, sorry. This is a slice of life. This is a slice of life episode. And it does a pretty good job with it. There's a couple of noteworthy problems. I want to mention this, though. This is written by... This is penned by Andre Barmanis, which I've mentioned him a couple times before. He's probably one of the most prolific Enterprise writers alongside Braga and Berman. And uh, so there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad there. And it shows in this very episode. I also want to give special praise to the guest stars in this one. Uh, especially Joanne Pringles. Uh, Pringle? Joanne Pringle, I'm going to assume that's how that's supposed to be pronounced, uh, who plays Rihanna, his mother. And the gentleman, ah, I got it right here, I've got it right, I'll just pull it up. Because the gentleman who plays his brother does a pretty good job too, and there's a nice little scene I'll mention later. Um, there's Corey Mendel Parker, is the person, yep, and he does a pretty good job of that too. Haven't seen either of them in many things, although apparently he was in Spider-Man? I'm going to have to look that up later, but anyways... So, <clears throat> you know, good stuff, good stuff, I'm with it. The cold open is surprisingly well done. At first, I was prepared to make fun of the cold open, because it doesn't really do much, right? This is a really weird position to sit in. I'm trying to find some place to be comfortable without hitting the thing, because these, these armchair things lock in and out of place, and I'm trying not to do that on camera, so you don't hear a chunk as as I do it, but... I think that's unavoidable as long as I'm in this chair. Sorry, guys, I haven't found a chair that is, you know, good for my back and doesn't make noises. I'm still working on it, I swear. Maybe I should just get a throne. I'm just kidding. I would be super uncomfortable. No. The cold open, it's just like he's just sitting there in the sweet spot reading, and then he comes down, and he's got a message, and that's basically it. Not much of a cold open, right? At the same time, though, that cold open is basically perfect for this. First of all, it's a little, just a, just a tiny bit, but it's a little bit of characterization. With that simple presentation, we get the idea that Travis likes to come here to the sweet spot semi-regularly and just hang out. No pun intended. He, he just likes to rest. You know, this is a recovery spot for him, a safety spot. You probably know what that's like. I'm sure many of you have your own safety spots or have had safety spots in the past. I'll go ahead and talk about this because I've mentioned this before on camera. For me, when I was growing up, uh, especially going through my high school years, it was my shower. Not the whole bathroom, just just the shower. And that's where I'd go just to conk. You know, that was that was the armored vault, right? That was where I just kind of degauzed and dealt with everything. And I'm sure some of you understand. So it, it's a nice little human moment. 
And then immediately after that, you know, he gets pulled down and whatever. And so it, it's also very down-to-earth, very just everyday, which also gets across the point of the episode. So I'm with it on both fronts. Now, after that, we get the bit where, hey, they want us to go check out this thing that's happening 30 light years behind us. Now, that's not a small distance in this particular era, but I bring that up because they all act like it's a big deal having to turn around. Oh, man, even though they've been turning around constantly. And they also reference it as if it's directly behind them. And I, I suddenly got the very strong mental image that their plan of exploration was, here's Earth. And they just picked a line and just went, and have just been trying to go straight out rather than, you know, a search pattern or even like some kind of grid thing or anything that would make sense. Like they're playing Spore and rather than trying to check out the nearby areas, they're like, that looks like a cool star over there. Anyways. So to, uh, this then leads to, uh, I'm going to talk about the B plot here. Because it has nothing to do with anything. It's it's kind of a slice of life thing. And it only really stumbles once, which I will reference later. To Paul, first of all, remembers the harmonica thing from Tucker. That is a very minor point, but it is interesting to me that she does bother to remember that, that she that she is sufficiently that she cares enough to bother, basically, to, to maintain that bit of bit of trivia. What's interesting is an immediate reaction to that he invites her out to the movies. And not as a date thing, just, you know, hey, you should come hang out with us and we are going to watch a movie. I think you'd like it. It's Dr. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Now, <laughs> I don't know if that's a counter gesture, but it is interesting that he's trying to you know, reach out in return, that he is also trying to you know, make some kind of a connection with her. This is also interesting to me, especially since the two have, have had pretty good chemistry pretty much since the get-go and actually work pretty well together. So it makes sense that the two would be this friendly with each other. I know that sounds strange, given that it doesn't look friendly, but once again, that chemistry between the two actors, which I've mentioned several times before, is on display. Now, I'm all for trying new things and encouraging people to try new things that you think they might enjoy. Lord knows I do that all the freaking time. I am, however, a massive extrovert, and I am aware of that fact. One of the things that fiction does that tends to bother me just, just a little bit is it tends to treat introversion or someone who just doesn't want to be social, regardless of actual intro or extroversion, as something that's a bad thing, something that needs to be fixed or cured or helped. Fiction does that a lot. And that's basically how this is portrayed. Oh, we could argue around it. We could say that she's just being Vulcan, or maybe she doesn't want to be a part of the crowd, or maybe she's not interested in uninteractive media. But the way it's portrayed is basically as a comedic piece of ha-ha, she's so weird and off over there in the corner, we need to try and convince her to, to do this, and it's shenanigans kind of a thing, right? I mean, she even goes to the doctor looking for a medical excuse to be able to walk out of it, for God's sakes. To Paul does that, which is just, okay. Now, that being said, when would they get to the actual film, what's really strange, and this is where the, the episode kind of flounders on this point even more, is she's so de-invested, apparently, that she starts to read, to work while doing it. She is then chastised, and then seconds later, chastises flocks for getting in the way of her enjoyment of the film, and it turns out she actually liked the film. Now, there's nothing wrong with working while watching. I do that all the damn time. 
I did that about 40 minutes ago. I usually get little paperwork stuff done while I'm working on these episodes and watching them. Uh, not a lot. Nothing you know, mentally taxing or whatever. Also, my friends know this. I'm the guy who, when I sit down you know, at home to watch a movie with a friend, I usually have a video game in my hands that I am also playing simultaneously. Now, I'm... Now, you're probably thinking, it's so rude, and, you know, that's that's valid, and if that was the kind of thing that bothered them, then I wouldn't. But my friends and family know, no, that's just me. I am paying more attention to them and to the film than I am to the game in my hand. And I will react just as much, you know, as, as if I was just fee uh, eyes glued to the television. That's just, that's just kind of the person I am, right? I mentioned this. Because even though it would make sense that T'Pol was into the film and was just doing something in the exact same manner that I just described, that I do in real life, it is, the, the way the episode portrays it is, ugh, I need something to do. Oh, thank God, I don't have to watch this movie. And then later on she tries to flip it, and it's almost portrayed as if she's, she's either lying or making it up. And they even have the line, I think introducing her to the movies is a bad idea. Now, I'm not trying to be anti-comedy here. It's just this falls completely on its face for me. It also does make me wonder, you know, torches and pitchforks. No torches and pitchforks to the Vulcans. And yet there were some who reacted with fear and mistrust because they didn't know what to expect from an alien race. That's an interesting story point, which won't be addressed until season four. But I just wanted to comment on it because because there's dozens of storytelling possibilities just with that point right there. Also, final tidbit, to Paul being introduced to a movie and interacting with the crew in a social manner and talking about first contact with Vulcans feels like the kind of thing that would fit better in season one. Anyways, do give me a moment. Uh, I'm going to respond to my mother's text here because she's wondering if I'm okay. Please apologize. This... I apologize. I hit record, and then she's like, hey! And I'm like, uh, give me a minute. Oh, God, now I can't type. <laughs> I usually don't type these. I usually tack out, but I'm sure you don't want to hear me ah, talking about this. Let's see here. Here we go. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is, of course, the A-plot. I'm just going to talk randomly here to fill in the time. That's how, that's how you do this, right? I could edit this out, but I want to be as unprofessional as possible. Oh, my God! I can't type! I can't type! <laughs> the pressure's on! <laughs> Part of the problem here, I don't know if you guys have this problem, is my brain, I, I have gears, right, in my brain. And when I'm in work mode, I'm in work mode. And you may or may not have seen this sometimes, especially when I'm streaming, and someone will show up and be like, hey, such and such, and I'm just like, oh, and I downshift a little bit to try and, wait, so, huh? Dinner, get what? Lasagna? I didn't say anything about lasagna. But you mentioned dinner? What else could you have been talking about? And, and it takes that moment to mentally, oh, right, you're talking about uh, yes, let's do this and this. And then I have to get back to the show. Or do you want me to uh, hyper-edit things like I did in the previous episode? I can do that. No, I'm not doing that. That takes too much time. This already takes too much time. So, <clears throat> let's move on to talking about the main plot. There's this bit where... And I feel like this is just thrown in for the people who watched you know, TNG, which is probably most people. 
you know, hey, we should have families on board. That'll solve the problem of being homesick. No, that would be ridiculous. At that point, we might as well have a psychologist on board. Wah, wah. But jokes aside, that got me thinking a little bit, as most things do when it comes to Trek. Because what we're seeing is basically, this is probably the best showcasing of the two mentalities of Starfleet right there next to each other. The civilian and the military. Now, I can and, and will continue to argue that Starfleet is a military organization. However, regardless of whether that is true or not, we do definitely see that they have a military side and a civilian side, and this is present in many different aspects of many different shows and the movies. This idea, the fact that it should be safe enough and acceptable enough to bring kids and loved ones who are civilians on board a ship that is going to be in dangerous situations on a regular basis, I'm not even counting like enemy forces, just you know the, the random crap they encounter every week, versus... My God, no, that would be completely unacceptable. This needs to be prim and proper, and this they have to be order and function and rules that we follow, which is what Reed is following there. You see those two sides of things, and it makes you interest. I don't know, it's just interesting to see those two. Because this early on, well, I could see the argument that Starfleet, as is presented in Enterprise, is not a military. Not yet. They're leaning that way, sure, but they're not actually there. And we see that by, say, TNG's era, having kids and family members on board is perfectly normal. And they're also fairly militarized. So they've just kind of taken those two perspectives and just married them together and said, yeah, okay, both, go. Just food for thought. Um, so Travis, hang on. This is when Travis finds out that his dad's dead. That sucks. Allow me to comment, before I talk about the scene... Allow me to say that I don't like to comment on the music in Enterprise's era because it's, well, because it's this, it's this era of track from, from about season five of TNG to about season four of Enterprise. So, you know, encompassing four shows there. There's just, I, I call it the wallpaper music. And I do mean that as an insult, but at the same time, I don't necessarily mean it insulting Lee. You know, it, there's a very generic tone to the music. It's because the whole point of wallpaper is you notice if it's not there, but you're not supposed to notice it when it is there. It's just backdrop, right? And that was deliberate design, it's worth noting, as I've mentioned many, many times before. There are exceptions to this, of course. There have been exceptions in DS9. There are the occasional exceptions of Voyager. We've actually already had a couple exceptions in Enterprise. But for the most part, wallpaper music. So I've been trying not to comment on it because I have nothing else to add to it. Hey, the wallpaper is still there. But in this scene, where Archer goes to the sweet spot, Travis once again retreated to the sweet spot, same character point from the beginning, that's his safe spot, right, degaussing, he's retreated there and Archer comes in, and it's a good scene except for the music, which actually destroys my enjoyment of this scene. It, it feels like it's intruding, to the point where it's like, what? Because it's generic sad music. Now, maybe this is just me, but generic sad music? detracts universally. The only way it works is if it's in a parody. It's like, oh, and then I... Like, imagine the scene for a moment. Picture the music, if you will, or if, you've re if you're watching the episodes with me, just, just list listen to that bit. And now picture, instead of being this big, you know, heart-rending moment where he's found out his dad dies, and he's acting his heart out, right? I don't remember the actor's name. Oh, my God. Um, Montgomery, Anthony Montgomery, is acting his heart out. He's doing a good job of it. So credit, credit where credit is due. 
And, you know, Bakula's doing a decent job counterpart to him. The two have, have a decent scene, and it's a good moment. But imagine for a moment if instead of this good moment, they're like, Sir, I, I wanted to connect four. I wanted to put in the red piece, but there was a, there was a blue piece there. I couldn't connect it, sir. Back it was like, or excuse me, Archer's like, one time when I was younger, I, I was playing Connect Four with a friend of mine, and he just kept trying to make patterns, and I was, I was like, no, Billy, you can't. You can't. I'm trying to trying to play the game, but he wouldn't listen. And this whole time the music's playing. That's exactly what comes to mind when I hear generic sad music. And so this whole time I'm listening to the scene and I almost want to mute it because of how much I'm being ripped out of it. I hate to, to rag on this point, but I'm mentioning this because this is so egregious because it is such a good scene being portrayed terribly. <laughs> so... Uh... It's also one of the only times I've seen music this misused, my opinion. Now, I'm looking forward to everyone in the comments telling me I'm wrong. Although, legitimately, if you think I'm wrong, please do so. You know, I do... <laughs> Disagreements are cool, as long as we're being civil about it. Um, so, uh, there's this bit where Tucker gives family photos to uh, to Travis to take over to his, to his ma. I don't know if you guys know this, and of course you don't, why would you? So I got my phone, right? Every time I visit family, which isn't that often, it's about once a week-ish, every time I get to see family, I make a point to take at least one picture. And I have archives of those, and I've strung them together into videos every now and again and all that. But the point is, we're at a point in history, technologically, where we can do that. You're probably thinking, why bother? Well, memory isn't perfect. However, memory can be prompted. And I could look at every single one of those photos and I could be like, oh, well, this is what we were doing there. Oh, this is what we were doing there. And I could tell a little bit of story for each one of those. And, well, that's going to be useful in 40 years when my memory may or may not be as accurate as it is now. Because I'll either be alive and probably partially cybernetic or, you know, dead. But the point remaining, it's the kind of thing that I completely get, right? Because another thing I tend to do is I tend to compile those for, you know, for, for family members, for other people, so that they have these archives, and they can go through and, and look. And again, it's for them in 40 years. Because sure, you know, you get to see your kid every day, but it's that mentality, right? In 20 years, you won't see your kid every day, and you're going to start missing them. And having those pictures is either going to help or make you really sad, but either way, it'll probably help. Same idea. And it kind of makes me think... Remember way, way back in, uh, I think it was Strange New Worlds, is like the second or third episode of the show. I think it was third. And they take pictures of them down on the, the planet. And obviously the, it looks like they're taking a picture of that in one of the pictures of this episode, which is part of what prompted it. But I bring it up because they took pictures. While they are here out here to scan and explore and do all that fun stuff, there should be a photographic record of this sort of thing. Because this is history. It is history on the macroscopic scale before, for spaceflight and for humanity and for Starfleet for an organization that isn't even called the Federation yet. But it's also history for these people. In 40 years, you know, Mayweather's going to want to have those pictures to be able to share with people. Or Mayweather's mother's going to want those pictures and so forth and so on. I, I hate to bang on this point. I apologize. It's just something that got me thinking. Because it's the sort of thing you'd think they absolutely should do. 
especially given the circumstances. They're at a very unique point in human history. While TOS was basically just another day, it's, it's you know, the Wild West, TNG was the winds of change, um, and Voyager was just doing its own thing. Only two of the Star Trek shows, not counting the ones I haven't seen yet, obviously, because I haven't seen Discovery or uh, Lower Decks or Picard, only two of the Star Trek shows have been at pivotal points, historically speaking. Enterprise, obvious, and DS9, again, obvious. Now, I know, not everyone knows they're in history when they're making it, but, I mean, that's just an argument for make, taking those, uh, you know, recording stuff down anyways, isn't it? Because you never know. I mean, we've all played Fallout, right? You go through the, the place and you find the records and the logs. That's like, oh my god, I always knew that this was going to happen. And now we, we the, the people in the future, know what happened because someone recorded it. So there you go. Good job. Anyways, I'm getting way off topic. <clears throat> I wouldn't call... So there's this bit where Travis is talking to his mom. He's like, yeah, I wouldn't call it a dangerous mission. How many times have they nearly died in the last year and a half? It's a lot. Uh, <clears throat> there's this really great tidbit. This is when I bring up uh, the gentleman... Oh, I wrote down his name. Corey, Corey Mendel Parker. He plays his brother, Paul. There's this really great bit where he goes into the cargo bay, and he's obviously happy to see him. You know, they do love each other, and the care is there and present. But there's this little tidbit where Mayweather, <laughs> Travis, offers to help. And Paul, the brother, says, thanks. And he says it in that, that in a perfect tone of, no thank you. Eh, screw you. Um, and then immediately catches himself and recovers, and then is like, no, nah, no, nah, you're here on leave. I couldn't do that to you. Why don't you go and take a rest? And he does recoup. He turns it around a bit, but it is nice to see that. It's very human, and it's one of the reasons this episode succeeds so well, is because it's a very zoomed-in, down-to-earth human episode. Um, and like I said, great acting from the guest stars. Um, looking at my notes here, there's this bit where... We're going to skip forward a little bit. Uh, actually, no. There's a nice little tidbit. And I, once again, the episode does something well, which immediately doesn't make sense. This this happens several times in this episode. There's this bit where they go into warp, and they hear the going into warp alert. And both he and his mother, without even thinking about it, just automatically, instinctually grab the nearby support rails, or the support beams, or whatever, for when the ship goes into warp, just like you have on a monorail in real life, right? That's a nice touch. Not only the fact that they're there, and I didn't even notice until they did it, but the whole hallway is lined with those, so people will always have something to just grab, although there's none in the corridors, so whatever. So someone always has the thing, but also the fact that they did it so automatically, including Travis, who hasn't had to do that for four years. It's a nice touch. You're probably thinking, well, where do they screw up then? Well, immediately after that, they go into his quarters, which has a full chess board on display with all the chess pieces just fine. None of them shuffled out of position or anything. And I know it's such a little detail, but I would have actually been praising it if, because I was paying attention for this, if in that scene they open the room and the chess set is there and some of the pieces are knocked over and like shuffled a little bit to the side. That would have been just brilliant prop design. But anyways, I'm getting it. Just, it's whatever. So, Mayweather, Travis, is like, I'm going to install these upgrades. Now, Paul says, screw your upgrades. He doesn't say that literally, but... The point he makes is, what are we going to do when they break and you're not here? Interesting point. Interesting point, actually. Because it's semi-valid. 
it's all well and good to have these kind of things, but what if we can't fix them? Then we're just going to be screwed when we need to get our ship running and we're in the middle of nowhere, right? So there's a validity to his point. But at the same time, it wouldn't be that hard to be like, hey, how did you get this done? Or to leave a tech manual or to be able to have some way to work around that. And it's not like he's talking about completely replacing the engines. I'm pretty sure they could make this work. Furthermore, it's pretty obvious his main issue is just with Travis, which we'll cover in just a moment. Now, what happens shortly after is Travis encounters a childhood friend. And, okay, that's kind of neat. Um, they talk about the cargo authority. You know, again, I believe this is actually the last time it's brought up. Once again, would have been better on season one. And this is the exact moment I started writing down. And, and so here's my notes. Man, I love how nice low tier this is. This slice of life story, blah, blah, blah. And that's, okay, that's not actually my notes, right? Because I don't write notes like that. I write notes in, uh, in shorthand. But, you know, what I actually wrote here was low, slice, and cargo authority, and character. Exactly. In other words, what I mean here is that this has been a great episode that I've just been absolutely eating up. Then the ship is attacked. I was literally in the middle of writing those notes down when they had to bring in a threat of the week. I'm, I'm, I'm not complaining. They do a good job with it. It actually works out okay. Because even this kind of a threat of the week can just be a slice of life, after all. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having that. I mentioned the possibility of a, you know, a civilian Star Trek show set around this era or before this era. Remember, this is a 50-year-old ship. So, you know, possibilities there. But, well, you still need some kind of action every now and again, right? There's nothing wrong with occasionally having a threat to the ship or threat to the individual. It doesn't all have to be low tier, just like it all doesn't have to be high tier. I am, as ever, a fan of moderation. So they get attacked, cool, and they're trying to escape, and they're trying to escape, oh God. and they're going warp 1.85. <laughs> now this is amusing to me for two reasons. One, that's pathetic. But two, and substantially more to the point, the aliens are, 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 barely, are, are just kind of keeping up with them. They're not super fast, in other words. I bring that up because that right there implies that there are plenty of ships within the home sector which all have this same general limitation, not having super fast warps. And they even make this point. It's one of the reasons why I keep being irritated when an alien of the week shows up and just happens to have a massively faster drive than the warp 5 drive. Because they shouldn't. That's, those should be the exceptions. Maybe they are, and we just only hear about the exceptions. But the point is, most of the people in the home sector should probably be down there at the warp 2 range, right? And that's like their cap. Maybe warp 3. And that's exactly what we see here. Even these brigands who are trying to rob them only have ships that can basically keep up with them. Or they can totally outpace them and all of my points are invalid. Either way, what would you do? You're, you're in the captain's chair there. You're on a cargo hauler with like two plasma turrets and a bunch of cargo and you're already behind and you're already having issues and you need to, and you're, you're about to be raided by pirates. You can flee to safety and you might make it. You can abandon your cargo and have all the problems that's going to involve. Or you can try to fight back and possibly die. What would you do? No judgment on any choice here, because they're all valid choices and they can be mixed and matched, too. It is worth noting he was willing to abandon the cargo until they demanded that they take the ship as well. 
So until it became a raiding, uh, a, a body raiding, a slaving mission, in addition to a marauding mission, uh, that he was willing to cooperate and then he was willing to fight. Side note, I really like the, the way that the ship is. It's very Star Wars. It's this dinky little thing hauling tons and tons of just a line of cargo behind it. Because that, that makes perfect sense, right? There's a logic to that. It's very train designed. Um, I don't actually know if that would work in real life space physics, because I'm not a physicist. But it is nevertheless a very cool showcasing. Before they get to the actual fight, though, he goes down and he talks with his brother. And his brother finally gets pissed off about him, and, and you, you left the family. And he just keeps hammering that point over and over. You left, you left, you left. Because that's his real concern here. While he's ranting about that, though, he mentions how Starfleet's taken all the good people. Nobody wants to haul cargo anymore. Oh no, there's a topic. And indeed, that could be an entire story arc topic in that theoretical cargo show. That's totally never going to happen. Because think about that for a second. So, you have a job. You can be someone who carries boxes. Or you could be on the bleeding edge of society exploring brave new worlds. Now, this is one of those interesting aspects that Star Trek never properly examines. It does bring it up periodically. Voyager's actually brought this up. TNG has brought this up. DS9's brought this up. Sometimes the job isn't exactly glamorous. Even among Starfleet, you still need people to cart, count cargo containers. So you still need people to haul freight. You still need, you know, the quote-unquote mundane jobs to be done, right? What's interesting about that is here in real-life society, that's true as well. It's just, in real life, we have this weird misconception that those jobs are less worthwhile, and therefore, you know, those people tend to be paid less money, which is actually pretty stupid in my opinion, but I don't want to get too much into economics on this one, even though we're about to talk about economics in general. But you could argue, well, it doesn't take it any to haul freight. Okay, does that make it any less important? A doctor cannot do their job without the freight haulers. Or, to put it in another way, how are you going to, you know, that hospital can do a wonderful bang-up job right up until they find out that nobody's taking away their garbage and they're going to have to deal with that because the, you know, the, the trash haulers are gone, right? Those kind of jobs are essential, is what I'm trying to get across here. And I'll admit, a little bit of the janitor background speaking here, but I stand by that sentence. That, those kind of jobs are essential and critical, Star Trek doesn't really seem to present an actual answer to this problem. Because it is a problem. How do you deal with that? Because even if you assume that financial gain is not an aspect, if we have moved beyond economics, we've talked about that before, but let's assume for a moment that making more money is not part of the motivation. Not a lot of people are going to actively seek out being a freight hauler, right? So how do you motivate to do that? You could mandate service maybe rotating service, or maybe you can try to add some kind of benefit to that. In fact, in a Star Trek scenario, it would be interesting if the economic benefit is higher for being one of the freight haulers than it is for serving on a starship, because that would actually make a weird amount of sense given the setting. They need the extra motivation to do the job that seems less glamorous, so the extra in incentive is pushed onto that market. Now, all of this is just spitballing and headcanon, because who knows what they actually do. And Lord knows that, again, even as recently, and, and you know, in the modern era of DS9, the farthest forward Star Trek has gone, not kind of the new shows which I haven't seen, it, it would make a degree of sense, because they do still trade. They do still have an economic infrastructure. They do still want to make 
money, make currency, make, make income, and therefore actually have a living. So it's just interesting to think about how exactly they are dealing with that in this era when they don't have all of the tools necessary in order to try and incentivize. Or maybe they do have the tools and they're working on it. And again, you could see how this could become a whole thing. We could do it a whole... I've got to be the most boring person on the planet, because this sounds fascinating to me. Doing a whole, probably not an actual major arc, but make it like a sub-arc. Make it a, a background story arc across an entire season of this cargo Star Trek show. The ECA, you know. Star Trek, ECA, there you go, that's the name of the show. And make this background element that they're having a harder and harder time getting replacements and they're having to do more with less. And it gets to the point where cargo just isn't getting to where it needs to go and certain colonies are starting to have problems because they're not self-dependent, or not, uh, they're not subsistent anymore. Or they're not subsistent, yeah, excuse me. Or maybe in some places they can't be subsistent. They need that interstellar trade. They need the interstellar movement in order to actually make things happen. And at some point, they would the ECA would have to petition and be like, all right, look, <laughs> how do we deal with this? And maybe that whole incentive thing I mentioned could be something that starts to be shopped around. Like, okay, we need, we need people in order to help keep the infrastructure of, of the sector going, right? Anyways, enough about that boring nonsense. Let's talk about an exciting space battle. So they win. Um, I, like I said, I do like the actual ship. And in fact, I actually liked the space battle in general. The only thing that irritated me about it was whole plating's offline. <sighs> They're not shields. It doesn't work that way. You also shouldn't even have whole plating on that 50-year-old ship, so let's not even get into that. It's 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 just a it's it's I was enjoying the whole scene and then <sighs> and then back to the rest of the scene. <sighs> the episode ends. We're good. It makes me wonder. He, 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 Travis, with just some tools that were on hand, was apparently able to upgrade some of the equipment on the ship. What would they be able to do if they had an actual overhaul? Like if they were actually able to bring the ship into Utopia Phoenicia or the civilian equivalent and just actually overhaul the ship. You're probably thinking, well, that would take months. Yeah, but think of it long term. I know, I know it's hard to do for, for economic types, apparently, given... Given investor mentality. Sorry, we're done, we're done. But the problem with the quarterly return. But the point is that if you, if you think of it like a speed run, okay? If I spend five minutes just running in a circle getting something done, you'd think that would be slowing down the run. But if I, in so doing that five minutes of wasting my time effectively, I then make the rest of the run faster by any amount more than five minutes, then I have gained time, Right? This is routing. You know, this is, this is planning. <laughs> so let's say they spend nine months overhauling this ship, and then it goes out and starts hauling freight again. And given the fact that it can now go, let's say, maybe just off the top of my head, warp four, which, remember, warp is a logarithmic scale, so that is way faster than warp 1.8, which they were barely managing before. Now, all of a sudden, they're making their, their hauls in way, way less time, in, a, in an order of months. They might actually make up that time inside of a year, Right? Food for thought. Either way, that's all I got. This was a good episode. I wish we had more of them. I will see you guys next time.